podcast for Tuesday, July 26th. We begin with an update on Pope Francis's apology at the former Ermanskin Indian Residential School. We get details on how it unfolded from Global News Edmonton anchor Eileen Bell. Next, we continue our conversation surrounding the Pope's visit. We get reaction to the apology from Matthew Wildcat, a member of the Indigenous community and a professor of political science from the University of Alberta, who was in attendance at yesterday's ceremony. Then the latest on the war in Ukraine. We speak with Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. The professor brings us some details on the latest attack by Russian aggressors taking aim at Ukrainian grain exports. And finally, could your latest new car purchase come with a monthly subscription for items such as heated seats or even air conditioning? We discuss the new trend that could be coming to a dealership near you with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni. Pope Francis has asked for forgiveness for the church's role in the residential school system during his trip to the former Ermanskin Indian Residential School in Moskwichis, Alberta. With the latest on the Pope's pilgrimage and a pilgrimage of penance, as he has dubbed it, we're joined this morning by Global News Edmonton anchor Eileen Bell. Eileen, thanks for joining us once again this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. The apology delivered by Pope Francis yesterday, how was it received by the Indigenous community as you're hearing from up in that area right now? Well, I'm hearing positive things from it. I'm hearing people who felt that they weren't expecting him to um, be as insistent in his apology that as he was. He didn't just say, I'm sorry. He said it about eight times, and he said, I ask forgiveness in particular for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation. And he said um, that that was promoted by governments of the time, and that culminated in the system of residential schools. He was not... Um, totally condemning. He said, although Christian charity was not absent, there were many outstanding instances of devotion and care for children, but he said the overall effects of the policies were catastrophic. So he apologized flat out, full barrel, and um, said he was sorry it happened. He said that he would be working with uh, Catholic archbishops across the country to make sure that there is support for Indigenous people. Sorry. Alexa, turn off the alarm. Sorry about that. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Sorry. Um, It's interesting because on Global News, you could see some incredible images. And uh, one one that struck me was uh, a member of the Indigenous community. She was singing a version Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. Canadian National Anthem in tears. You could see the emotion on her face. I'm wondering, Eileen, was that somewhat isolated or could you feel that from other members of the Indigenous community on hand? It was very isolated. It wasn't on the program. Um, She was um, very angry still by what happened, but everybody is at different points in this in this journey of healing. Right? There are uh, there is one woman that that I know who said that she's already come to grips with her um, forgiveness and is moving on so that she can heal that way. So there there are extremes. The woman that we saw yesterday was still absolutely in, in deep, deep pain. There was a woman sitting a couple rows ahead of me at Musquachese yesterday who um, would start sobbing, and, and a friend sitting beside her would put her arm around her. And to me, that was one of the more, most poignant things, is that you have to have 
someone with you to help you and support you through this. And that uh, some some wounds are so deep that it's it's still going to be a while. And that's what the Pope acknowledged. He said that this was a just the, the beginning or one of the beginning steps of the process, but that he wanted to make sure that people understood that he hoped that through the church they would be able uh, to get help in their in their healing and their forgiveness for what happened. It really has been powerful to watch and and to see, you know, and sad at the same time to see so many emotions, so many feelings that are coming up for so many of the affected Indigenous people. Do you think that it's it's also a, a good thing for us, the non-Indigenous community, to be seeing that, to be maybe a little more understanding as to how deep that pain truly is? Oh, I, I think so for sure. I think seeing, especially the woman that was was um, singing O Canada yesterday, it was very, very clear to anyone who saw that 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 her pain is still deep and still real, and the anger that uh, some people who stayed away are are still feeling. Um, they may never uh, give that up. You know, they say when you're wounded, you can forgive someone, but you don't have to forget. Right? You can still be on. Um, on guard, basically, and and have trust issues, and that's I think what they're they're trying to heal and move on with. At the end of the uh, mass, or rather the address yesterday, uh, Chief Willie Littlechild came up and presented the Pope with a with a traditional headdress, and the crowd absolutely loved that. They uh, they kind of, they went wild with the uh, applause at that point when the Pope stood there with with the feathered headdress and and smiled out at them it um it that was a very touching moment because to me it said you're one of us now and we we love you that they gave him that headdress eileen i'm looking at the clock uh, according to what i'm reading uh, the commonwealth stadium and the adjacent clark stadium opening at uh, 7 30 this morning ahead of the pope's mass a little later this morning. Uh, what uh, Can you paint a picture of what we can anticipate to uh, see at this Mass? You bet. Well, first off, um, Clark Stadium, as you said, is adjacent, and those were overflow seats. And for people that are, even yesterday, there were still thousands of tickets left for Clark Stadium, but the Pope is going to start first by circling inside Clark Stadium in the Pope Mobile so that everybody there can see him. Then he'll go on over to Commonwealth Stadium, where a traditional Holy Mass will be will be served. Um, there'll be, I, I can't even understand the logistics of this, but there will be communion for everyone that is there. Um, if, you're, if you're Catholic and familiar with the concept of communion, that's an individual one-on-one. So times 63,000 in Commonwealth Stadium and another three or 4,000 in Clark Stadium. That that's going to be a massive undertaking as well. But yet the the Pope is going to leave. Um, probably they they budget about an hour and fifteen minutes for the mass. So by eleven thirty, uh, he'll he'll take a brief break, and then uh, later today he's heading up to Lac Saint Anne, and uh, he'll be serving a mass there as well. And he's also going to be able to um, to visit with the pilgrims that go to Laxane, and there'll be more than usual on a, on a normal day, but all throughout July there are, that are pilgrims going to Laxane and to uh, take part in the waters there that uh, are have for over, th- over a century been believed to have been healing, and then he will bless the lake before he leaves there. Thank you so much for the update once again this morning, Eileen. Really appreciate your time and, and letting us know exactly what's happening on the ground. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll 
Keep you posted. Thank you so much. Eileen Bell is a global news anchor up in Edmonton, live on scene. She will be at the Mass this morning. It sounds incredible that they had to open Clark Stadium. And if you know it, it's right to almost adjacent to Commonwealth uh, for the overflow seating. And the logistics, as she mentioned, with everybody being, uh, you know, sort of community, it's, it's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So, and it does sound, on all accounts so far uh, this morning on our program, that it's being well received, these apologies. Yes, uh, we have had, you know, a couple of texts of criticism as well. You know, Stephen said that he never heard the word, I apologize. He yeah. heard the word, sorry. And as other people have pointed out, that the Pope is saying, you know, the, the Catholic, the people of the Catholic the members faith of the, yeah. are, a, are, a, are sorry but not the church itself. So, you know, the verbiage is certainly interesting of how, how, how things are being discussed. How intentional that is. I would suspect very. To protect an org- like at the end of the day, uh, no disrespect, an organization mm-hmm. and institution. So, yeah, we're going to be, uh, you know, unpacking and, and covering more uh, throughout the morning. But I have to let you know that the Indian Residential Schools Resolution Health Support Program has a hotline to help residential school survivors and their relatives suffering trauma invoked by the recall of past abuse. The number is one 925 4419 Andy, we talked about that Indigenous woman singing O Canada in her language yesterday. So, so emotional. We have a little bit of that for you, I think. Yesterday, Pope Francis asked for forgiveness during his visit to the site of the Ermanskin Indian Residential School. He is holding mass today at Commonwealth Stadium, again asking for forgiveness. Uh, how is this apology being received? This morning, we're checking in with Assistant Professor in Political Science, Matthew Wildcat. Good morning, Matthew. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. For you, do you believe the Pope's visit and the apology? Do you, did you feel it was a genuine act of remorse? How did you take it? Yeah, you know, I so I think we can think of it in two ways, right? So, you know, obviously now there's a text of the apology and, and people have poured over it. And, and I think they've pointed out a number of um, things which were lacking. But me, yeah, I, I was there, you know, I, I experienced it. And it it was a deeply moving event, and you know, in part, not just you know, see, like seeing and hearing, you know, the Pope apologize for the actions of the Catholic Church, but you know, the tears that people were shedding around me, um, you know, I, I think just like a and and the silence uh, while people were listening to him talk of just this, you know, I, I um, just a, a moment that. Um, will will stay with me um, forever, and and so yeah, in a lot of ways, I I did um, I did find it deeply moving. But you know, of course, um, we could talk about the politics of it uh, uh, more if you like. Yeah, the politics of it, uh, Professor. I want to ask you about, in the sense that, uh, from what I've heard and, and from a couple of things I've read, and and you were there, you can clarify mm-hmm. this. Yeah, when the Pope did, uh, you know, offer this apology, he mentioned. He did not say on behalf of the Catholic Church. He said on behalf of what members of the Catholic Church had done. I, I found that language quite deliberate. Did, did you get the same kind of message that he seemed to be protecting an institution, but putting it on on the members to a certain extent? You know, absolutely. Like I, I think that it that you know that this um, distinction is highly important. 
you know, at the same point, I think when we look back on it in 20 years, that distinction will have faded into the background a little bit. You know, like the Pope, he's, you know, he's not a regular everyday Joe, right? He, he can't say like, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of my organization. I'm just, I'm just speaking as an individual here. When the Pope speaks, he speaks on behalf of the Catholic Church. Like that is the end of the story, right? He, he can't say, I'm deeply sorry for all of these horrible abuses that we committed and for him to not represent the church in those moments, right? And so, you know, I, I think it's good for people at the time to, you, you know, I, I think we, we should, um, you know, have a magnifying glass on, you know, some of the details of it. But, I, you know, even 10 years from now, I'm pretty sure the way in which people will describe it is the Pope came and apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church. And only uh, real keeners are going to bring up, well, actually, if you read the text, you know, so that's what I think about it. Matthew, you are from the community of Mascochese. You're a member of the Ermiskin Cree Nation. If you had the opportunity to speak directly with the Pope, what would you say to him or what would you ask of him? You know, so, um, so this is a question I've, I've gotten a number of times. So I, I don't think I have anything to say to um, the Pope. I, you know, I, I was there to listen. I, I was there to bear witness yesterday. And in particular, you know, the main reason I wanted to attend was, was not necessarily the text, but the atmosphere, the, the feeling that was generated in the crowd. And, you know, it really, you know, like I, I said, it was a, a moving uh, experience for people who were there. I, I think that even though it wasn't perfect, this apology um, fulfilled call to action 58 of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was that the Pope come to Canada and deliver an apology. That is over and done with. You know, if I had to say anything, I, I guess I, I would say that, you know, now the work is with you, with the church, because to some extent I, I feel as if this was the end of the books between, you know, this broad relationship between Indigenous peoples and the Catholic Church. And, and it feels weird to say that because, you know, the narrative we're giving of reconciliation is we're just at the start of the journey. And that's absolutely true if you think about it from the standpoint of the relationship between Indigenous peoples and, you know, Canadian state and society. But with the church, there's actually, we are at a crossroads. We, we don't actually have to continue a relationship with the Catholic Church as, you know, as large-scale entities, as nations, and the church as an institution, right? Yes, the church has churches on reserves in those communities themselves, and there's many Indigenous people who are church members. But as Indigenous peoples, I think we can now choose to say, you know what, you did what you need to do, unless you're willing to come to the table with, you know, uh, financial restitution or with giving land back, that, you know, we wish you well on, on your journey, right? That, that uh, this thing you needed to do to give survivors a basic level of dignity that you apologize and you feel bad and awful for all of these horrible crimes you committed um, is now over. And, and I think we can move on from it in some ways. I want to ask you uh, before I let you go, Professor, the significance of the mass today. Uh, do you know many members that are going to be attending? You know, I, I, uh, I don't know a lot of people who are going to be attending. I, I think in part maybe because uh, everyone at Muscogee is incredibly burnt out. It, you know, it, yeah. it took a humongous amount of effort from the community. This, I think, is probably about the 15th media appearance I've done over the last um, week. Uh, you know, my dad is the superintendent of uh, Muscogee's schools. The schools had to put together an incredible effort around uh, busing, uh, catering, getting all the connectivity set up for 
the media, you know, a lot of that fell on the plate of the, the schools and, and the community as a whole had to, you know, really organize and, and figure this all out. And so I, from what I've heard, I haven't heard of anyone attending because I think we feel like uh, we've done our duty in, you know, giving this gift to the church of hosting the Pope so that he could come and do what needed to happen under Call 58 to come and apologize uh, to people for the actions committed by the church. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective this morning and your time. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Professor Matthew Wildcat, Assistant Prof in Political Science at the University of Alberta. Still a lot of skepticism about a Russia-Ukraine deal that would allow Ukraine to export its grain resources. To get the latest on the war in Eastern Europe, five months since the start of the invasion, we are joined this morning by Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning, everybody. Let's talk about uh, the deal itself. So a grain export deal signed between Russia and Ukraine Friday, just hours before Russia bombed Odessa in Ukraine. So has the deal fallen through or are we still expecting that this may go ahead? Yeah, that's exactly it. There's There's been this deal put in place so that Ukraine is able to export wheat uh, through what, what basically the area of water controlled by, by Turkey. And Turkey's also part of the the mediation here to make sure that both both sides uh, adhere to the rules. Now, almost immediately following the signing of that, there were there were missile attacks that came in that that impacted the ability to to send that grain out. Uh, so, really, what it shows is that it's it's really no deal and no incentive for a deal for Russia to participate in this. And that's the other big question: is that there's a lot of incentive to get Ukrainian wheat out of the country, and there's very very little incentive for Russia to allow it to happen and just case in point is that russia's been just inching and inching its way closer to controlling small parts of ukraine uh since the beginning of this conflict and it's it's a financially devastating uh, uh to them so any threat of ukraine uh coming back with extra revenue coming in uh would would be seen as just making that job harder and Russia has so many uh, cases of breaking treaties, immediately following them, uh, coming up with explanations off the cuff about why they did it. So with the recent missile attack that, that could, you know, bite what they said is, you know, uh, any sort of uh, vessel coming out of Ukraine, Russia deems to continue to be suspicious. So there's really not much incentive for Russia to kind of hold up their part of the bargain, which is really unfortunate uh, at this time because we've got uh, serious hunger issues globally uh, extending from the lack of Ukrainian wheat getting out to market. About 828 million people go hungry every night around the world uh, and, and that 50 million of 45 countries are on the brink of starvation. So without the breadbasket of Europe getting its goods out, we're, we're in trouble. Is there any other way, uh, Professor, to get that grain moved or is this the, the most convenient way, the most accessible way or is there any other route? Well, the thing is with, yeah, there are, there are indeed. And one of them is something that Ukraine's been trying to push uh, by sending it through continental Europe, either by rail, truck, or river barge. The thing is, is that with the quantity of, of wheat we're talking about, it pretty much has to be in, in cargo ships. Uh, the volume is just so massive. And the other, the other means just will not allow that to, to happen at a, at a speedy rate. Uh, it'll also keep the prices high if those ships don't get to port. 
So that's the one way that Ukraine's dealing with it right now. But the other way to do it is to make sure that Russia loses its capability of intimidating Ukrainian vessels. And that might require some more presence in the region by NATO uh, to, to make sure that this, this agreement stays in, in pace. But I, I think what we're seeing here is, is, you know, there's not a lot of teeth to these agreements. And I could say that in about a month from now, uh, you know, once harvest season's over, that, that agreement could be, uh, could be shot. Professor, why would Russia, why would Putin even agree to this deal? I mean, uh, you know, everything that he's done is to try and, and crush Ukraine and, and certainly the leader of that country. So why even allow this to happen if it does happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think it's part because Russia is in a spot where it's not meeting its goals the way that it thought that it could. So internationally, Russia is becoming more and more isolated. So the the trade networks that's relying right now involve you know, Iran. Uh, there's support things going on with Cuba nowadays, and uh, in, and with the oil exports to to India are the, are the big ones. But every now and then there are still resources that Russia requires from from the West essentially. So some of these are seen as measures of good faith to to get people talking again, maybe to to build up a little bit of trust even temporarily, and then quickly backstep on it once it's no longer convenient. And that's really what what needs to be understood when when dealing with with Mr. Putin's government. The other the other factor to it is that you know people in Russia are are increasingly growing tired of this. It's starting to impact more of people's lives in Russia and not in a positive way at all. So he's he's losing ground and he's losing support and this this measure of this this corridor uh, being brought open. Uh, I'm sure many many of the hardliners in Russia themselves would actually see that as a sign of weakness. The other thing we we talk a lot about the grain recently, the uh, past several days here, uh, Robert. But natural gas is the other entity that is being used by Vladimir Putin, leveraging natural gas supplies against Western countries backing Ukraine. I know we're still months away from winter, but how serious could, could this become? And are there other options for those Western nations? Yeah, it's it's going to have to be because right now the the lack of enthusiasm that we've seen from some countries in Europe against Russia's aggression is directly connected to the to the threat of getting the gas pipes turned off, which they're again more than happy to do, but at the same time they still require the revenue from it. So what's really interesting about this particular conflict is that it's not you know a total world war it's it's not a cold war at all but it's one that's deeply deeply dependent on global economics and right now because they were already pushed to the brink through the pandemic we're seeing these stress points come back into into play so uh the, the fact that one port is creating such a disturbance with food supply the fact that natural gas has just been shown how europe is dependent upon it matters so much this is this is also part of the equation uh, and and you know the way to to go forward with this is not just by sanctioning uh russia but also by realigning where these resources come from so for europe it's, it might have to be looking at deeper investments in liquid natural gas or, or other sources of energy there's been a lot of talk lately about the primary objective, whether it's new or that was the original one, is to topple President Zelensky's government, the Ukrainian government. Is is this a new target for Putin because his war is not going as he planned, or was that always the objective? I thought that the original discussion was more about he wanted the land back. Right. the the original The original talks that that, that were coming out of Putin's office were to say that. 
This is about, and this is a language that we can expect for any future conflict with Russia too, is to liberate foreign Russians. So Russian uh, expat communities or ethnic Russians who are overseas or in another country, uh, the way that Moscow is approaching is that they are being threatened, their, their identity, their culture, their rights. And so that was the language that was coming out of, of Moscow that, that Ukraine was was uh, threatening Russian rights and or of ethnic Russians in the country. We can also see there's other other countries that have a similar sort of demographic. And at any time that there's some hot talk going against uh, those, those countries, Mr. Putin will will use that. But ultimately, the the military strategy now that we we can sort of see it in hindsight was really about moving that massive land army around Ukraine, shutting it off, hoping that everybody would flee, that Zelensky would would hit the road, and he didn't. And in many ways, the removal of Zelensky and the downfall of Ukraine was original plan A for for Mr. Putin. And and the the importance of for him of protecting Russians abroad, that's the that's a secondary excuse. Robert, thanks for the update. Thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks so much for calling. That's Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies, Dalhousie University. They are luxuries that a lot of us just take for granted. You buy a high-end vehicle, you expect some higher-end luxuries, like maybe heated seats, a heated steering wheel. Well, what if you were told you would have to pay a monthly fee to keep those features? It is happening, and the big question is, will this new pricing structure come here to us in Canada? Gadget guy Mike Yanni joins us this morning on Tech Tuesday to chat about this and other tech stories. Good morning. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so disappointed to hear that this is actually happening because, you know, what is a fair price? I'll put it to you guys. How much are you willing to pay a month for those heated seats? I'm not. I paid for it when I bought the car. Yeah. Right? Yes. And I think that's the way most Canadians and probably most people feel about that. But that's not what's happening right now. Uh, higher end car companies uh, like BMW are starting to charge. Uh, eight, let's look at the heated seats first. $18 a month. $180 a year, $300 for three years, or $415 for a lifetime subscription. These are all going what they call subscription models now. And it's not just the heated seats. We're also talking about heated steering wheels. So these plans are rolling out in South Korea, the UK, Germany, New Zealand. They haven't introduced these to North America yet. However, you know that if this is happening overseas, how long until it comes over here? I can't even believe that. Talk about nickel and diming after you buy an expensive vehicle, and then cars ain't cheap no matter what car you buy. And the weird thing is, I mean, you've already paid for this. Yes. That is a hardware that's in your vehicle. You've technically paid for it. This is all being unlocked through software. Mm -hmm. But what I think is going to happen here is that you're going to have to start going to third-party mechanics and I bet you there'll be software hacks to unlock this for free. I was going to say, Mike yeah. Yanni, of all people, will know how to do that. That'll be a side <laughs> hustle. Mike's garage. We got Gadget a new, guy. Yeah. And, uh, There's a way right. around this. I mean, we paid for it. That is that is malarkey, as I say, Mike. Yeah. Um, I, you know what? It'll be interesting to watch this space over the next year or two and see if these actually come to North America or if consumers are just going to put their foot down and say, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah, no we, I mean, we have seen this already, though. There are, have been a couple of manufacturers in the U.S. that started charging for Apple um, CarPlay. They were mm. saying, well, you have to pay a monthly fee for it. So we have seen little glimpses of this. Wow. Maybe they're testing the waters. It's, om- it's almost like the airlines have gotten a hold of the car yeah. industry to <laughs> yes. charge yeah. us for everything. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about AI Alive. This 
is, I think, a script for a Hollywood movie. In fact, there's been a couple movies over the recent years that kind of dipped their toes into this. Have you heard of the name Blake Lemoyne? No. Mm-mm. Okay, so he was an engineer who worked for Google that recently just got fired. He was working on an artificial intelligence called Lambda. And Lambda basically is like this uh, a chat bot that has a free flow of dialogue that you can ask it anything, and it was just a wealth of knowledge, and it can respond to you like a normal human. Well, Blake went to Google and said, you know what, this AI is sentient. And what that basically means is this AI has human feelings. He claims that over the course of talking with this chatbot, it started expressing concerns that being shut off would be like death for it. And all these other kind of creepy things, he approached Google and Google allegedly fired this this engineer saying there's no way this is possible and they let him go. Is Stephen King behind all of this? <laughs> but you know what? It's so funny because you know, people talk about the at some point the robots are will be our overlords. Is this the beginning? <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, that's weird. Scary, scary it's creepy. Stuff. It it's is creepy. creepy. And you know there's gonna be some Hollywood scripts and some movies I'm sure based on, on this because yep. it's it's right out of Hollywood. Wow, incredible. Uh, thanks for the updates and uh, for scaring us this morning, Mike. <laughs> Always a pleasure. And everybody's angry. They have to pay for their heated seats now. Way to go. The text line blew up. up. It's two bits of info. More out of our pockets and our uh, toaster is going to come get us. The AI. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. He is the Gadget Guy, Mike Yanni. You can find him online at Gadget Guy Mike. I also want to check out on YouTube. Just search Gadget Guy Mike Yanni. It's a great content there. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.